0: If you're able, please stand for the reading of Scripture. Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. Luke 11, 1 through 4. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. Luke eleven, eleven through thirteen. Which of your father of your fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then know you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The word of the Lord. Believe. I believe. I... <laughs> I believe in God. Father, Maker of Heaven and Earth. I believe in Jesus Christ. Who was conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate.
1: He descended to hell. The
0: third day. He arose from the dead.
1: He ascended into heaven.
0: Seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe. I believe. I, I I believe. I believe in the Holy Spirit. the church looking with saints. The forgiveness of sins. The resurrection wretched of the body.
1: And the life everlasting. Amen. 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 And now we invite you. Thank you, Melody, for that introduction. You did a great job setting things up. Thank you so much for all you. Melody here? Maybe she left. She pours so much into our children. I was here on Wednesday, and she was there early getting things ready for little disciples. So thank you. Thank you so much for all you do, Melody. So first line of the Creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. That's how the Creed begins. I want to ask you a question. What do you believe? Do you believe that, for example, the Great Wall of China exists? I would guess, hopefully, most of us believe it exists. Uh, anybody ever been there, touched the wall, seen it with their own eyes? I don't know if there's anybody. So we have nobody, so we're, we're depending on, we don't even have any testimony here in our congregation. We're depending on testimony from other people. Um, what about this? How many of you understand how your internal combustion, combustible engine works in your car? How many of you, before you you got up to go to worship this morning, you popped open the hood and you you took a look at the spark plug and the crankshaft and the pistons, and you're like, I understand what's happening. I'm going to trust this car to get me to church. There's a couple, I see a couple of you that could probably do that. Most of us, let's be honest, we have no clue how our car works. (laughs) We turn the switch and we get in, and somehow we just trust that it's going to take us safely to all these places. Here's my point. You're going to believe in something. You're going to have trust in someone. You're going to have faith in something. That's a non-negotiable part of life. Like, you cannot function in life without faith. Because you, for example, cannot possibly visit every location that exists on the map and say, I've seen it. It's real, I believe. You cannot understand everything that you depend on to get by in daily life. You're going to have to go see a doctor, and that doctor's going to tell you that she's going to replace your hip, and you're going to have to trust that she knows what you're doing. You cannot figure that out on YouTube, right? You can't do your own hip replacement by watching a YouTube video. You're going to have to trust somebody to put you under anesthesia, to operate on you. That is an act of faith. My point is we're constantly reaching out in faith. We've been doing it since we emerged from our mother's wombs. We came out and quite literally as little infants, we were reaching out in faith that somebody would care for us, that somebody would meet us, that somebody would love us. When we begin the creed by saying, I believe in God, we're not just kind of saying this bare fact. I believe that God exists. We're saying that. We're saying that's true. But we're saying something more like, I believe, I trust in this particular God. And so that's what, what I want to begin today is to talk about what, who is this particular God. Well, the first thing we would say about that, one of the things we could say is this is a triune God, meaning it's tri meaning three. So God is one, and God exists in three persons, God the Father, Jesus the Son, and Holy the Spirit. And I mentioned uh, last week, the Apostles' Creed has this triadic structure. So we begin with the Father, we'll get to the Son next week. And we'll eventually get to the Holy Spirit. It has these three members of the Trinity all in it. So can you put up that first slide? Here's a definition of the Trinity for you. The Trinity is a central doctrine concerning the nature of God, which defines one God existing in three co-equal, co-eternal, co-substantial persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Got that? Can we move on? Three distinct persons who have been God for eternity who share one substance and are equal. It's, it's simple, can you put up the next slide? It looks like this, if for math people. It's one plus one plus one equals one. Is, that, is it clear now? Are you, come on guys, are you getting your minds around the Trinity? Um, there's a story uh, that goes about Augustine. He was 415, St. Augustine, 415. Augustine is brilliant, probably one of the most brilliant influential theologians of church history and and Augustine's out walking along the beach and it's this bright sunny day and Augustine's kind of frustrated because he's taking a break from working on uh, one of the great contributions he made on the Trinity and it you know this work on the Trinity had made him bleary-eyed and he needed some fresh air. So Augustine's out walking on the beach and he sees this child who's running back and forth from the ocean to this small little hole in the ground. And Augustine asked the boy, what are you doing? And he has this little pink shell in his hands, and he said, I'm trying to fit that great big ocean into this tiny hole. And Augustine smiles, and he, uh, he watches the little boy take a few drops out of his little shell and drop it into the hole. And he says, my child, you could never fit this great, magnificent ocean into this tiny hole. And the boy responds, and you could never possibly understand the Holy Trinity. Boom. The little boy sets Augustine straight. I love that story. I don't know if it's true, because in the story, the little boy, like, disappears. (laughs) Here's what I love about that story. I think it gives a perfect image of what you and I are trying to do when we profess to believe in God. We are trying to do the equivalent of what that little boy is doing. We're trying to take a vast ocean, and we're trying to fit that into our little minds. Sorry, they're pretty small. If we take this seriously, we're going to quickly run into the limits of human understanding. We're going to run into something called mystery. and We don't always like mystery We like to know how things work. We like to tear apart engines to see how they work. We like to do lots of things to know. And so we as humans, we've always looked for things around us to try to help us get our minds around this triune God. So let me give you a couple examples. One is of St. Patrick. When he went over to Ireland, he was trying to explain to the Irish this idea of a triune God. And he said, you know, look look at a clover. It has three leaves coming from one stem. Three leaves, one plant's like God. God and three persons. But unfortunately, as soon as we begin to talk that way, we start running into problems because every attempt to illustrate the Trinity runs into problems. So the problem here is that, yes, there's three leaves, but each of those leaves is not a distinct plant. Like that leaf can't exist on its own. So that comparison breaks down because the members of the Trinity are three distinct persons. Let's try another one. You maybe heard this one. Anyone heard the one about H2O? You might have heard this one. So oftentimes people have tried to describe the Trinity by comparing it to the three states of H2O. We have H2O as a solid, which is ice. We have H2O as a liquid, which is water. And we have H2O as a gaseous state, which is steam. Same substance, H2O, in three different forms. Ice, water, and steam. Same essence, three forms. Right, And that helps us kind of get our, God, our minds around God. God has one essence with three forms, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But this quickly runs into problems too because the same water can't be liquid ice and gaseous state all at the same time. But our profession as Christians is that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have always been the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and will always be. Right? And the other thing is that like, Steam and and ice and water, they don't really hang out together. They don't really commune together. I don't think about a lot of love being shared between steam and ice and water. But the Trinity is a community of love. Three persons communing together, loving each other. See, the challenge with the Trinity is every time we start to talk about it, we quickly are in heretical territory. I, I quite seriously mean that. It is so easy Speak a heresy when you try to express what the Trinity is. Michael Bird says it's usually less problematic to say what the Trinity is not than to say what it is. So when you talk about the three in one, uh, there's a chance you'll either overemphasize the oneness of God or the threeness of God. So if you overemphasize the oneness of God, what you end up is kind of this God with three faces. So imagine a, a God who can show up with three masks. I can be God the Father. I can be God the Son, or I can be God the Holy Spirit. Which costume do you want me to put on? Sometimes I think we kind of think about God that way. But that's not what God is. The God we profess to believe in is three distinct persons, not one God who pops on with one mask and then another mask and another mask. But there's another problem, too. If we so overemphasize the threeness of God, we can get so, we can also run into problems because we're not saying we believe in three separate gods, a God called Jesus, a God called the Father, and a God called the Holy Spirit. That is what we would call tritheism, which is not correct. The other part, problem we can slip into is we start seeing the Trinity as kind of a hierarchy. So like there's the boss God, which is usually God the Father, and then there's Jesus, who's below the boss God, and then the Holy Spirit is somewhere down there. But that's a distortion too, Because the Trinity is co equal. There's not a hierarchy. They're not the boss God and the secondary God and the third. They're all equal. So, you put up that uh, slide, Ron. This is called the Shield of Trinity, which I think is helpful to get our minds around. So, at the center, we have God, the one essence, three persons along uh, each of the points of the triangle. So, each of the persons is distinct, but it's also very clearly the Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. But you see all those lines going inside, but they are all God. Is, that, is some of that, that ocean starting to get into your head? Are you getting a few drops into your head? Um, we have this conundrum that we are dealing with something that is, if we're honest, is beyond comprehension. It's like, I was thinking, it's like trying to explain to your dog what quantum mechanics are. Like, good luck with that. You're never going to do it. But we had to wrestle with it. Why? Because the early church had to make sense of 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 1. Remember last week we looked at the Shema, the, uh, the Creed in Deuteronomy, and said this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one didn't say the Lord is three. Since these uh, early Jewish followers of Jesus were little boys and girls, they had been saying twice a day, the Shema, our God is one, our God is one. And Jesus shows up. And this is very confusing. Because pretty early on, the church begins to recognize that this person is also God. Remember, Christianity emerges from Judaism. The first Christians were Jewish. They were Jews. They didn't convert to Christianity. They were Jews who were monotheists. What had changed was that the Messiah had come along, and they had recognized not only is he the Messiah, but they began to see this is a divine person, right? But they didn't stop believing God was one. Same God of the Old Testament. God is one. But now they're understanding Jesus is God too. What do you do with that? You've got to figure out how one plus one plus one really does equal one and that's how over a period of really hundreds of years the uh the doctrine of the trinity develops now most of you probably know you're not going to find any text in the bible which gives a very explicit clear um articulation of the trinity like we say it now the one of the closest things you have is matthew 28 19 at the end of the the gospel of matthew you have jesus sending out his disciples saying therefore go and make you can you can take that off Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. So one name, Jesus doesn't say, go baptize them in the names. He says one name, and then he gives these three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the foundation is there in the biblical text, but it took Christians a long time to work this out. And one of the things that I hope you can kind of see as we study the creed is that church history matters. Like, I heard one time, I heard this, uh, I think this guy was saying, this Baptist, this Baptist seminary professor he used to say his goal with his teacher, the students, was to show them there was something in between your grandma and the apostles. <laughs> and I think the point of that is, like, sometimes we think, like, our grandma showed up, and she had this faith, and then it, the last time somebody was faithful was when the first apostles were there. Like, we have this huge gap. But church history matters. Whether we say it or not, we have been deeply shaped by the uh, the traditions of the church, by the church history, and so we'll look at each member of the Trinity in this sermon series. I want to spend just a little bit of time on the first per- person of the Trinity. Uh, a lot we could say, obviously, way more than we have time for. But the first member of the Trinity is God the Father, and I want to highlight two things about God the Father that we, the creed says: God is Father, and God is Almighty. God is Father and God is Almighty. Let's start with this word Almighty. The Creed tells us that um, this God that we profess to believe in is an Almighty God, is a powerful God, is an omnipotent God. And one of the clearest ways we see that omnipotence is in the creation of the heavens and the earth. Um, This God, as we we saw, as Charlotte read in Genesis, speaks creation into being. Just, Just think about that for a second. Everything we see and deal with, the birds, the fish, these pews, these the sun, did you guys see this beautiful sunrise this morning? It was gorgeous. The, the moon that Odysseus landed on this week, everything originates by his word. Uh, my kids, they, they've over the years made some really, I think, good, impressive creations with Lego. But when they create with Lego, you're always taking pre-existing blocks and you're using that pre-existing material to create something. You can make some impressive things. Humans have done a lot of impressive things by taking the raw material of the world and building things. But when we talk about the creator God, we're talking about something different. We're talking about someone who speaks into existence. It'd be cool if my kids could make a really cool Lego it would be really cool if they could speak the Lego set into creation. That would be amazing. So we're learning something here. We learn a lot here. We are different than the creator. We are a created creature, and we have a creator. Like Remember, because we're, um, we're trying to also... The other thing I want you to see is that this creation is good. So one of the things we're trying to wrestle with in this sermon is, can I put my trust in that God? Can I put my faithfulness in this God? And one of the things we're seeing here is that when God creates, God creates good stuff. Uh, um, and this is good, too, because as Ben Myers points out, if God was not powerful and his power were limited or sporadic, we couldn't really trust that God. Right? So imagine if in the, as God is speaking the heavens and earth into existence, he slips up like he, he, he forgot to measure twice before he cut. And all of a sudden, there's this mess in creation. Like, that would be disconcerting to me. I know there's a lot of mess in creation. Now, my hope is that we, I, I profess belief in a God who's powerful enough to make all things right. And I'm going to be nervous if this God doesn't have that power. God didn't mess up when he created the heavens and the earth. I think sometimes we kind of think that God did mess up when he created the heavens and the earth, that he kind of botched things up. There's actually this old problem that we've had in the church that goes way, way, way back, and it's kind of saying that the material world that God created is bad. The really good stuff is the spiritual world. Body, bad, spirit, good. This place, bad, that place, good. Marcion, a second century century uh, teacher, he taught that the material universe was evil, and he he really was disgusted by the human body. So Marcion's description of the human body was flesh stuffed with dung. Flesh stuffed with dung. And the understanding was this this, this world, this, this was not made by a good God. This, this world's a mess. And here's what we need to do we need to get away from this world. We need to fly away from this mess. And the creed reminds us very early who created the heavens and the earth. It's God. It's good. That means you are, Ernest used to always say, God doesn't create junk. You ever heard Ernest say that? You're not junk, I'm not junk, the world's not junk. The beautiful sunrise, if you saw this morning, that's not junk. Your labor, week after week after week, that's not junk. What God has created is good, and we're still living in God's good creation. Does that mean that evil doesn't exist? Absolutely not. We know evil exists. We know sin has corrupted this world. There's no denying it. But again, as Ben Myers says, our world is sick and in need of healing, not an evil world that needs destruction. Right? The creed was going to remind us later on, we're not flying away from this creation. Who's coming to us? Who's coming to us? Who's... <laughs> Seriously, who's coming to us? Like Who's returning? Okay, good. All right. Jesus is returning. That's our profession. Yes. And there's going to be resurrection. That, that matters. We're not going somewhere. We might be somewhere in God's presence temporarily. Creation, God is always coming back here. And God is going to redeem this world. And God is going to make this world right because God is powerful. Powerful. This world is corrupted by sin and evil, but it is not so corrupted that our God cannot redeem you and me and this world. So we got to get that right. God creates a good world. Our creation is good. It's been corrupted, but it's good. The second thing I think we need to think about creation is that there's a massive gulf between this creator God and me. If I, I've been reflecting on this. It's kind of cool to be able to have a whole week to thank you all for giving me the time to do this, but this is this massive Gap between the creator God and little old me. And when you see kind of people in the Bible, in the New Testament I'm thinking about, who bump into the creator God, you know what they are? Terrified. One of my favorite stories in all the Gospels uh, that shows this is when the disciples are in the boat and they're getting hammered by a storm and and the boat's about to be swamped and they're going to die and Jesus is asleep on the cushion. And uh, they wake up Jesus and they're like... uh, what are you going to do here, Jesus? We're going to die. Uh, quiet, be still, calms the, calms the storm. And the disciples are like, that's really cool. No, they're like, who is this? I mean, imagine if you're out walking around with your friend and it's raining, it's lightning, and your friend just goes, boom. You don't, that's not a party trick. You are terrified at that kind of power. This is a glimpse of the power of a creator God. That is nothing for that creator God. The the line from the psalm that came came to my mind was, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars you have set in place, what is mankind that you're mindful of him? Human beings that you care for him? Who am I? I'm dust and ashes, as I was reminded on the Ash Wednesday service. I'm a nobody. My life is fleeting. I am small. If God is the vastness of an ocean, I'm like the tiniest little grain of sand at the bottom of that sand. I am a nobody. Folks, we've got a problem here. God is almighty. I can profess that. I can profess that I fear God, but can I love a God that I fear? The German theologian Jürgen Moltmann said, omnipotence can be feared but never loved. We've got a problem. We've got a mighty God, but can we love that God? Because that God has told us we are to love that God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Ron, can you put up the shield of Trinity again? I might be able to use this to kind of barely start getting some of that vast ocean in my mind. I'm not going to fall in love with that picture Does that warm your heart? (laughs) Are you like, are some of you, yeah, thank you. I can try to get my rind around one plus one plus one equals one. I I can't, I'm not a mathematician. I don't fall in love with math equations. I can fear omnipotence. I don't know if I can love omnipotence. But God's not a doctrine. God's not a math equation. God's not a quality of unlimited power. God is a person. In fact, three persons, to be more precise. And we just need to pause here for a second. Why are we doing that? Matthew, uh, aren't there more practical things to be doing than talking about the doctor, of the Trinity? Somebody is thinking that. Right? Okay. How are we going to love a God that we don't know who that God is? I heard a story about a dad who was... Uh, I think they are driving and his daughter was in the car and he was listening to Van Morrison's Brown Eyed Girl. He's like, you're my Brown Eyed Girl. And the girl goes, Dad, I don't have brown eyes. (laughs) Do you see the problem with that? The problem is, Dad, you're not paying attention to me enough to realize I don't have brown eyes. That's great you say I'm your Brown Eyed Girl, but I don't have brown eyes. Loving somebody means taking enough time and care To get to know them. My my hope is this series is not that like we're gonna all be able to dot our doctrinal I's and t's, like we're gonna be immaculate when it comes to that. Here's my hope. You are gonna fall deeper in love with this God because you know this God better. And you need to know that this God is Almighty, but you need to know that this God is Father. I can't get my mind around the Trinity. I can start to get my mind around a Father. I have an earthly father. I am an earthly father. And I can at least start to get my mind around that. Of course, the, the, the language of father brings up all kinds of challenges. Some of us had fathers who were absent, distant, cold, maybe even abusive. Some of us are dealing with deep psychological wounds that have come about from the failures of our earthly fathers. Even the best of earthly fathers will let you down at some point. My kids don't know this yet, but they're going to they're learn it one day. They know it all too well. <laughs> this is a challenge. We also have a challenge of, understandably, what comes to my, a lot of our minds is this old white dude in the sky, right? That's a challenge. It's very—it can sound very patriarchal. It's interesting. The early Christians, early Christians—they were very sensitive to this problem. As Ben Myers points out, uh, they explained that the, the Bible doesn't use the word "father" to connote any kind of gender. The early Christians actually often compared God to a breastfeeding mother. You know, who often, you know who attributed gender to gods? It was the pagans. It was the pagan gods of Roman and Greek culture who made a god either male or female. But the Christians said, no, our god is not male or female. Our god doesn't have a body. Our god transcends gender in the body. So when we start imagining God with a male body, we're actually doing a little bit more kind of paganism than we are doing the early Christianity understanding of God. We also need to recognize here that the understanding of father comes down, not up. My understanding of what a father is comes from the father, not from her. Mothers and fathers at their best only can give us glimpses of the heavenly father. You know, when Jesus gives his disciples a picture of a father, you know what he, he does? He tells them a story, and it's a really good story. It's about a man who had a son who came up to him and basically said, I wish you were dead, took the father's money, ran off and lived in wild living, blew the inheritance. Out of desperation, the fun son finally turns around and goes back to the father, and what does the father do? The father runs to the son, breaks into a sprint, throws his arms around him, Kisses him. Says, "Bring the robe. Bring the ring. Let's have a party." It's an amazing story, and I'm almost positive that all the people heard that story said, That's, "That doesn't sound like my dad." Back then, think about your grandfathers and your how, how how dignified often it was to be. There was kind of this. It wasn't appropriate to do things back then. I'm not saying. That that's, should be the way the case. But back then, it wasn't appropriate for a father to be breaking into a sprint and grabbing his son and hugging him. and That's not what fathers did. And Jesus said, that's what my father did. That's what my father's like. Jesus said, my father is good. I don't know what your father's like. My father is amazing. Not only is my father amazing, but the relationship I share with my father, I'm inviting you into that relationship too. See, ultimately, we call God Father because that's what Jesus called him. Jesus called him Abba. And Jesus invited us. You you can call my father Abba too. In John 20, 17, uh, after the resurrection, Mary's in the garden, and, and Jesus says, don't hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. You see what Jesus is doing here? This is astounding. This almighty God that I've been trying to take the first half of the sermon to tell you about, who is so beyond our comprehension, we don't understand anything about that God relatively. We're just tiny grains of sand. We're trying to fit an ocean in our mind. Jesus says, that's your Father. That's your Abba. And he says, hey, come join. Come join the community of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, who for eternity have been loving each other come join that community. I want to join that community. I want to join a community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who have been loving each other for eternity. There's a a rabbi from the 18th, 19th century who who used to advise his disciples to carry two pieces of paper in their pocket. In one pocket was the phrase, for me the world was created, and in the other, I am but dust and ashes. Rabbi David Wolfe says that in this balance we find the genuine status of a human being. God is almighty and God is Father. God is almighty and God is Father. I am but dust and ashes. But for me, the world was created. I am but dust and ashes. I'm a tiny little grain. I am nothing. But for me, the world was created. Do you see how amazing this is? You have to have both. You cannot have one without the other. God Almighty and God the Father. There's one more thing we need to know about this Almighty, omnipotent God. What does this God do when this God wants to put his omnipotence on full display? Does he he exert his power like people like Vladimir Putin did this week and have his vocal critic, Alexei Navalny, killed Is that how God exerts power? No, that's what insecure people do. God is not insecure about His power. No. When God wants to display His infinite powers, He doesn't kill someone. He Himself, in the person of Jesus, is killed on a cross. That's how our God flexes on a cross, in the person of Jesus, in weakness, in shame. humiliation and powerless that's what power looks like not little dictator power, real power that's not insecure that's other centered in the ultimate irony we see the mightiness of our God on a cross defeating the powers of sin and evil and death for our sake you are not junk friends the almighty God held nothing back to bring you into his kingdom. I want to believe in that God. I want to believe in that story. I want to put my trust in that particular God. I want to put my trust, not just any God, but an almighty God, a father who is reaching out to me and love.